I'd invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Micah chapter 5. If you happen to read ahead, you may have noticed today that we're coming to one of those Old Testament prophecies that is commonly read during the Christmas or Advent season. It's one of those wonderful Old Testament promises where God foretells that the Messiah, the promised deliverer of God's people, will be born in Bethlehem. And I knew this passage was coming, and so I I joked with uh, some of you last week that we'd be celebrating Christmas in July. You got joy to the world this morning, so we got that. But as I looked at Micah 5, I was convinced that we've got to do more work than simply focusing on Bethlehem. You know, I set out to study Micah oh, a month and a half or two months ago. And I, I made the commitment to look at one whole chapter each week, which, you know, for me, is quite a challenge. We're looking at one chapter each week. And so today we're going to do more than hunker down verses 2 through 5. We're going to look at the whole of chapter 5. And I am really excited about the ground we're going to cover. What I want you to see is a full picture of the Lord's work of salvation. A full picture of the work that God has done and continues to do in the lives of his people. Now, I'm not going to cover everything. I I don't have time to cover all of God's works, but in this passage, we see a lot. I'll introduce it this way. Think back to when you were younger in the faith. Maybe it wasn't that long ago. Did you ever think Well, what now? I came down front, I prayed the prayer, I met with the pastor, I professed Christ. What now? The future is a bit ambiguous and confused. You aren't quite sure what the rest of the Christian life looks like. And maybe you would say, well, it involves repenting of sin and believing that Christ died on the cross for the salvation of sinners. It, it involves sharing my faith with others. It involves uh, going to the Lord in prayer and reading my Bible. I, I don't act and live like I acted and lived before coming to faith. You know, things like that. And all those things are true, and they do happen. But in Micah 5, as I was studying it, I was struck with a fuller picture of what God does in the Christian life. Again, it's not total. It's not comprehensive. But I'm convinced that the things we're going to look at today will more deeply inform us of the specific things that God does in the lives of his people. And so if there's anyone out there who might happen to be thinking, well, I became a Christian, now what? Hopefully I'll get you some answers today from Micah 5. And be forewarned, I'm not going to approach this chapter as a nitty-gritty commentator. My goal is to preach this text and to put before you the whole Christian life. The picture of God's whole work 
of salvation. And in normal fashion, there will be three points. We will see that the Lord provides for his church. The Lord preserves his church. And the Lord purifies his church. There you go, three Ps. The Lord provides for, preserves, and purifies his church. Let's go to him in a time of prayer before we open his word. Uh, Father God, I, I remember the words of the Apostle Paul who spoke of different ministers of the gospel. And he said that some planted, some watered, but you gave the growth. Father God, I would humbly ask that as your word is opened and preached, that I, a servant unworthy for the task, would plant and water, but Lord, you bring the growth. Would you bring it in the lives of your people? I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Micah 5, we'll read the entirety of the text. Now muster your troops... O daughter of troops, siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples. Like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man, nor wait for the children of men. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which, when it goes through, treads down and tears in pieces, and there is none to deliver. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and your enemies shall be cut off. And in that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you. I will destroy your chariots, and I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds. And I will cut off sorceries from your hand, and you shall have no more tellers of fortunes. And I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you. 
And you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. And I will root out your Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities. And in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations that do not obey. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. So before we get to my three points, I just want to make a quick comment on verse 1. Verse 1 would be better suited if it was included in chapter 4. And if I'd been thinking ahead, I would have included it last week. I'd remind you that the chapter divisions in your Bible are not original to the Scriptures. They were added later. And here we have an unfortunate chapter division. Verse 1 should probably be considered with verse, uh, chapter 4, and verse 2 should be the first verse of chapter 5. Uh, when you think of where we ended last week, of life in the valley, we see a continuation of that in verse 1, where uh, enemy armies have gathered against God's people. There's danger and distress. The, their king is unable to save them, and he will be humiliated. But with chapter 5, we see a stark contrast to the inability of the human king of Israel. So we're going to see that in just a moment. So point number one, the Lord provides. He provides for his church. He's the one who gives us everything that we need. Jesus will say in the Sermon on the Mount, if you who are wicked know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more Does your Father in heaven know how to give good gifts to you? He gives us everything we need. And what do we need more than anything? What is the greatest provision He has made for us? It's a king. And it's the king that is mentioned beginning in verse 2. This is... Where the Christian life begins and ends. With this King, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would be born in Bethlehem. God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. This is who we are. I think so many of our problems today, problems that we see online unrest, distress, it is because people don't know who they are. And we are those who belong to the kingdom of heaven as those under the lordship of Jesus Christ. He is like the sun in the center of the solar system that everything orbits around and from which all light and life come. We need him. Just like planet earth needs the sun and God has provided him for the church. In these opening verses we read that God will provide a ruler for his people who will be born in the small town of Bethlehem. Now Bethlehem had been the scene of the book of Ruth. It was the hometown of King David. But it's clear that when these words were spoken Bethlehem was considered as one of those unimportant spots on the map. To illustrate this, 
Maybe some of you remember back in 2005 after Hurricane Katrina made landfall. Do you remember what some person on the Weather Channel called our beloved state? You remember? The landmass between New Orleans and Mobile. Right? Someone at, in Atlanta at the Weather Channel headquarters viewed Mississippi as so unimportant that they referred to our state as the landmass. Now, we embraced this. We had, we had some fun with it. I, I remember one meme. It's a picture of the Wizard of Oz. And it says, pay no attention to the landmass between Louisiana and Alabama. There were college students at my alma mater who painted their chests and went to a football game. And they stood in the end zone and spelled out landmass state university. Something similar is going on here. This unimportant backwater town is where the hope of God's people will appear. And notice the details were given. This king from Bethlehem will come forth for me. Right? Jesus did not come in his own self-interest. He did not come to accomplish his own personal goals or to serve himself. He came forth for his father. He came to do the will of his Father who is in heaven. He would say this in Gethsemane. You know, the word Gethsemane, I believe, I read, means wine press. And there he is, knowing that the full weight of the world and the wrath of God is going to crush him. And he says, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He was talking to his father. That's who he came forth for. That's who he came to do the will of. Then at the end of verse 2, we see that his coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Meaning that this isn't just some guy. This isn't just another human prince or president who happens to appear on the scene in the first century. This is the one who in the beginning was with God and was God. The one through whom all things were made and came into being. That's who's coming forth. That's who the Lord has provided. But why was he provided? Well, we're told in verses 4 and 5. God provided his son for us because we need a shepherd. This is one of the most common images used in the scriptures to describe the people of God. If you you want to be humbled, just recognize that over and over and over again in the scriptures, the people of God are referred to as sheep. We see this in Psalm 95, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. Jeremiah 50, my people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray. The author of Hebrews refers to the Lord Jesus as the great shepherd of the sheep. And do you remember what happens at the end of, God's, uh, at the end of John's gospel when Jesus is reconciling Peter to himself? 
over and over again. Three times he says, Peter, tend my sheep. Feed my sheep. It's everywhere in the Scriptures. And it's so important for us to remember, we need, as we walk with the Lord, we need this level of self-awareness. This is who we are. This is how we function. We are those who wander away into isolation and danger, simply following our own appetites. We think of the hymn writer in Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. He says, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. That's who we are. And we are desperately in need of a shepherd who will defend and lay down his own life for the sheep. Going back to come thou fount. You remember those words? Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. He to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. All your days, never forget that this is who you are. A sheep in need of the good shepherd. And if we go back to that line I just read from Come Thou Fount, we see uh, the next reason why the Lord provided His Son for us. He to rescue me from danger interposed His precious blood. We see in verse 5, that not only are we, not only is he our shepherd, but he is our peace. You know, we talked about this a couple weeks ago back in Micah 3. Uh, the wealthy and the influential would pay prophets. And the prophets would respond to them by crying, Peace! Peace be upon you! Right? And, and you'll remember that Peace isn't simply the land resting from war. It's the absence of God's judgment. It's a declaration that all is right between you and your maker. It's a declaration that you are holy and righteous. And in Micah 3, these false prophets were leading the people astray, speaking kind words to those who lined their pockets. But that same word is used here. Peace. He is your peace. Not only are we sheep, we are those who are desperately in need of peace because we at one time or maybe still are enemies of God. He is our peace. You know, See, I have, my brain has just stopped working. <laughs> Growth in the Christian life. Every day, year after year, decade after decade, we remember and rest in the fact that Jesus is our peace. Our discipline is not our peace. Our uh, works are not our peace. Our morality is not our peace. As Presbyterians, we need to remember that our knowledge is not our peace with God. Christ alone is our peace. 
in the midst of trials, in the doubts of life, when you're on your deathbed, when you stand before the throne of heaven, He will always remain your peace. I mean, just ask, why are you accepted by God and not the recipient of His holy anger and wrath? Because Jesus Christ is your peace. Your greatest need has been freely provided by your Lord through Jesus Christ. And the Christian life will begin and end with Him. So the Lord provides for His church. The Lord also preserves His church. We see this in verses 5 through 9. The Lord preserves His church from all her enemies. You know, in Micah's day, this was the Assyrians. I've heard historians speak of the Assyrians, and they were a terrifying, brutal superpower. One of the most brutal regimes in the ancient world. That's who's coming. Micah says the Assyrian will come into our land, walk within our border, and tread in our palaces. But what does Micah say? Men will be raised up. And deliver us from the Assyrian. And you see how they're described. They're described as shepherds. In the end of verse 5, we're told, We will raise against the Assyrians seven shepherds. And they will shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword. So we're reminded of another aspect of being a shepherd. Not only would they care for and gather their sheep, but they would also defend their sheep from predation. You remember the narrative of David and Goliath. Everyone's too scared to go out and fight Goliath, and David says, I'll do it. And he's speaking with King Saul, and Saul's like, I mean, do you have any experience with this? And David says, well, I used to keep sheep for my father. And when there was a lion or a bear that took the lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered the lamb out of his mouth. And and if that apex predator came after me, I struck him and killed him. David protected his flock. And so has great David's greater son, the Lord Jesus. He is the one who defeated Satan, sin, and death. He is the ultimate fulfillment and application of David versus Goliath. And we'll get there at some point as we begin 1 Samuel. He's our shepherd, our peace, and our defender. The the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks the question, how is Christ king? The answer, as a king, Christ brings us under his power, rules and defends us, and restrains and conquers all his and all our enemies. He is the chief shepherd. But as we see in verse 5, he has also willed that there be under-shepherds, little shepherds, who serve under his authority to preserve and defend the church. In Ephesians 4, Paul writes that Christ gave the church the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry and for building up the body of Christ. 
The Lord preserves his church by giving her under shepherds who minister under the authority and auspices of the chief shepherd. And I'm, I'm so grateful for these. I'm so grateful for the elders who serve you as shepherds. I'm so grateful to be a part of a presbytery full of shepherds who guard PCA congregations from those who would come in and possibly lead them astray. I'm so grateful that I have a presbytery who will go after and bring back a pastor or session that's wandered off into error. You know, I begin by telling you that here in the text we have a picture of the Lord's full work of salvation. And here is another work. He's given you Christ, but he's also given you under-shepherds. Pastors, elders, teachers, presbyteries. Which means that you and I must reject any ideal of Lone Ranger Christianity. Where it's just you and your Bible and Jesus. I've heard people say, only just me and my Bible and Jesus. We don't need anyone else. It's unwise. God has given us the local church. He has given us the oversight of that church, the government of that church. He has given you officers for the preserving and strengthening of your souls. We are not to be lone ranger Christians. And we also recognize here that the Lord has given a wealth of teaching. In the form of creeds, as we read this morning in the Nicene Creed. He's given us confessions and catechisms, as I quoted from just a moment ago. And these help preserve the teaching and doctrine of the church. I mean, thank God. How how often do we thank God for the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechisms? I mean, thank, thank God that it's not just us And our Bible, isolated from the church and isolated from 2,000 years of church history. I mean, we stand on the shoulders of giants who labored and delivered to us faithful teachings of the scriptures that preserve and protect the church from falling into error and controversy. And these things have been resolved hundreds, if not thousands of years ago. The Lord preserves his church by giving them under shepherds. And as he preserves them, he makes them both a boon and a bane, a blessing and a curse. And we see this in verses 7 and 8. In verse 7, we read that the Lord's protected, preserved people shall be in the midst of many peoples like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass. They will be life-giving and refreshing. That's the picture here. God's people will bring life-giving refreshment to each other because of the power and word of Christ that is in them. Paul speaks of this often in his letters. He'll write to the Romans and say, Pray for me so that I'll be delivered and I'll be able to come to you and be refreshed 
by your company. He'll write to the Corinthians and he'll name three men and say that they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. He'll write to Timothy and speak of another brother and say, He often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. You want a picture of the Christian life, of life in the church. It's this. Spending time together, praying for, encouraging one another with the hope we have in the gospel. Doing so is like rain falling on parched grass. Maybe it's a group of our women taking a retreat for a couple of days. Maybe it's sitting with a friend over a cup of coffee. Maybe it's calling a friend who is struggling or having a family into your home. God's people gathering and sharing with each other the hope of the gospel is like rain falling on parched grass. But there's another side. The preservation of God's people will not only be a blessing but also a curse. A boon and a bane. Instead of rain, you see it, look in verse 8. We we have the picture of a lion doing violence to sheep. And it's not as if the church is doing two separate things here. They're being loving and caring uh, towards the insiders who are in the church, and then they're hating and hurting the unbelieving world. They aren't doing two separate things. They're sharing the only hope the world has of fleeing to Christ and looking to Him as your peace. The world just receives this differently. For the Christian, it's life-giving. For the unbeliever who is worshiping a false god or trusting in self, or for the person who doesn't even believe they need peace with God, the word of the gospel is violence. Paul speaks of this in 2 Corinthians 2 when he says, For we are the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to one a fragrance from death to death. death, And to the other a fragrance from life to life. God has preserved his church and given her Christ And for fellow believers, what radiates from us is the fragrance of life. But for unbelievers, it is the reek of death. I mean, just remember the crowds in Jerusalem. They preferred for a murderer to be set free as opposed to Jesus going free. Why? Because his words to them were the reek of death. We shouldn't be surprised when the church is shown the same treatment. It's actually proof that we smell like our Lord, which should be a very assuring thing. But on the other hand, if if something called a church is celebrated and embraced by our culture if it's not viewed as offensive and can, and, and can be embraced by godless people, then that says something profound about that organization. They're lacking the knowledge 
of Jesus Christ. So the Lord provides for his church. The Lord protects his church. And final point here, the Lord purifies his church. Now I'm trying to give you a picture of the full work of Christ in the Christian life. And here's the final point. Your God has promised to destroy and remove everything in your life that is opposed to him. This is the work that he will continue to do in you until you leave this world and meet him face to face. He will work holiness in you and remove everything that pollutes your soul. And the first thing he promises to rid you of is your security and confidence in the power of man. You see this in verses 10 and 11. He says, I will cut off your horses from among you and destroy your chariots. What were horses and chariots? They were offensive weapons. Military weapons. The more you had, the stronger and more secure your nation. And then there were also defensive weapons. Verse 11, cities and strongholds. These cities on a hill surrounded by thick, tall stone walls. And if you were inside them, you felt so safe and secure as if you were untouchable. But God says, I will cut them off. And it's not as though he leaves his people exposed and defenseless. He's the one who is their strength and defender. And as the psalmist wrote, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. We don't need a city. He's our refuge. We don't need a castle. He's our strong tower. And if we find our security in Him, we will never be shaken. As you live the Christian life, He has promised to remove from you any trust, any confidence, any security that is not found in Him. He'll also purify us by removing idols. We see this in verses 12 through 14. Idols and false worship. These are those spiritual powers that we look to apart from Him. You know, too, too often we aren't content with what God's Word says. We want more. And so we obsess over future events and listen to others elsewhere to learn what the future holds. We worship and serve created things rather than the Creator. Recently I saw a video on YouTube of a Navy SEAL who was interviewing Jim Caviezel on his new film, The Sound of Freedom. And the SEAL said, you know, I've, I've got a gift for you, Jim. It's a necklace, a rosary. And it kept me safe during all my, tour of, my tours of duty overseas. And I'm giving it to you so that you'll be protected. That's that's nonsense. That's idolatry. It wasn't the beaded necklace with the crucifix hanging on it that kept that seal safe. It was the Lord 
And he promises and says, I will cut off all those things that you look to for knowledge and comfort and security and worship that are not in me. I will purify my church and I will make you fit for heaven. And then we come to our final verse. Still under the heading of the purifying work that God does. In verse 15 we read, And in anger and wrath I will execute vengeance on the nations that do not obey. I mean, we just saw the Lord purifying his people, but what about those who refuse? What about those who will not go along? Those who will not trust in him and continue in unbelief and rebellion. Here he says, I will execute vengeance. One commentator noted that, quote, God's use of violence, inevitable in a violent world, is intended to subvert human violence in order to bring the creation along to a point where violence is no more, end quote. I mean, I thought of that terrible shooting that happened a few months ago at our sister church, Covenant Prez in Nashville. A violent person went into that church's school and began to indiscriminately murder both students and faculty. But in a very short period of time, brave police officers responded to the violence and sprinted into that school and shot the shooter. Violent injustice is ended with violent justice. That's the picture here. And that's the final work of Jesus Christ. How is he pictured in Revelation? He's pictured as a conquering king who comes with a sword in vengeance and wrath to avenge his people and punish wickedness. God will purify his people and one day he will finally and fully purify all of creation. A world marred by injustice and violence and chaos will be purified and made new. This is Christ's final work to bring eternal peace, to prepare an eternal home for his bride where there's no more weeping, no more suffering, nothing unclean, nothing accursed. So as we wrap up Micah 5, this, this picture of the Christian life, remember how you have been provided for. Remember that you, even today, are preserved by him. And remember that he is working in you, working holiness, removing things from you that are offensive to him. So let's be humble. Let's be quick to repent. Let's plead for him to expose all those things within us that are offensive to him and to look to Christ alone as our peace and trust, resting in the fact that he is our good shepherd and we are the sheep of his pasture. Encourage one another with these words until the day he comes and we meet him face to face. Let's pray.
Father God, we do praise the work that you began within us and the work that you have promised to complete. Father, we are those who can begin a project and never finish it. But it is not so with you. The good work you began in us, you will finish. Father, you have provided for us in your Son. You have given us a shepherd who sought us when we were a stranger and brought us into the fold of God. A shepherd who died for his sheep and gave his blood so that we might be at peace with you forever. Father, you have given us the church, this wonderful gift, this living house that we are a part of and we make up. Father, I do pray that we would be those who love for and care for each other and encourage one another with the hope we have in the gospel. And Lord, again, would you root out all idolatry, all wickedness, all hope and security and trust that we have in other things that are apart from you. Make us fit to live with you forever. We know that Right now, we are covered in the righteousness of Christ and that we're justified. But Lord, continue to work in us. Continue to make us fit. That we might live forever as your people and you be our God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.